All right, open your Bibles up to John chapter 13. <clears throat> John chapter 13, we're going to finish up the chapter tonight by looking at verses 31 through 38. If you have one of our Bibles, it's on page 957. From here, from verse 31 all the way until chapter 16, verse 33, uh, it's what's commonly referred to as the farewell discourse. It starts with the words, uh, don't let your hearts be troubled, and it finishes with the words, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I've overcome the world, right? Uh, And so in this discourse, in this farewell discourse, Jesus had just washed all the 12 disciples' feet, but after Judas left, he began to instruct the remaining 11, not, not only whose feet he washed, but whose hearts he washed, right? Whose hearts he cleansed. He began preparing them for his own departure and for their mission in the world after he was gone. And as we listen into this conversation with them tonight, In this passage, my prayer is that Jesus then prepares our own hearts, that we would take a seat in the upper room with these other disciples, and he would prepare us, uh, our hearts, for his return and for our mission in the world until he comes. I want to read, since it's only a few verses, I want to read it in its entirety, and then pray, and then we'll, we'll dig in together. So John chapter 13, starting in verse 31. When he had left, that's Judas, when Judas had left, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will look for me and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I'm going, you cannot come. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. Jesus replied, Will you lay your life down for me? Truly I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is faithful, reliable, and good. We thank you that it points us to Jesus Christ. And we pray tonight, as your word is proclaimed, that our hearts would be enlivened in the gospel and that we would know this love that you have lavished on us in the Son, and that we would give this love away to one another and to others, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Why is Good Friday good? Why is it good if it, if it focuses, if the central theme, the main point, the reason that we get together is to think about this horrible execution of the only perfectly innocent man who ever lived? We're going to answer that question by the time we get to the end of our passage tonight, but this passage actually takes place on the night before Good Friday. We're in the upper room. uh, They've had the the, the supper, and, and Jesus has washed the feet. In this passage, Jesus gave his disciples a command 
that prepared them for what was coming on Good Friday. In less than 24 hours, Jesus would be hanging on the cross. It was coming. Judas now had already left. The betrayal was set in place. The first domino had fallen and the rest were quickly behind. And in his command to these disciples in the room, we find a command that not only is for them as his disciples, but for us as his disciples, that we also must follow if we call ourselves Christ's disciples. Here's the main point of the message tonight, which is the, the, the command that Jesus has given. Just as Christ has loved us, we are also to love one another. And so then we have to ask, how has Christ loved us, right? If he says, just as I have done this, we need to go, what, have he, what has he done how has Christ loved us? In our passage, we're going to see this, that he's loved us with a love that is God-glorifying, that is disciple-distinguishing, and that is self-sacrificing. A love that is God-glorifying, that is disciple-distinguishing, and it is self-sacrificing. It's a love that's ultimately and finally revealed to us at the cross. It's a God-glorifying love. Let's look at verse 31 and 32 again. When he had left, Judas, when Judas had left, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. After Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he grew troubled in his spirit, and, and he told them that one of them would, would betray him. And after Jesus handed Judas the piece of bread, Judas immediately left into the night to carry out the betrayal. And as soon as Judas left, Jesus knew that things had been irreversibly set in motion. You ever, you ever uh, uh, start something and kind of wish you could stop, but it's too late? Jesus didn't feel that way. He started something, and yeah, there was agony coming. There was pain coming. There was... There was hardship. He, he was troubled in his soul, right? Yes, the cross was coming. But so was the glory. And in that, our Lord began to rejoice. The mood changed when Judas left the room. His spirit was troubled. But as soon as Judas walked out, he began to see the glory that was to come, as Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, for the joy, for the joy that was set before him. Jesus would endure the cross. He would despise the shame of it, and he would sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. But that glory wouldn't just come after the cross, right? It would come through the cross. Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified. God will glorify him at once, Jesus had already referred to himself as the Son of Man several times throughout John's gospel. This is the final time that we see it in John's gospel. It's a reference to one of Daniel's visions in which Daniel saw a figure that was given the same title. Here's, here's the vision in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. Daniel says, As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat his clothing was white like snow and the hair of his head like the whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Can you even grasp that? 
What a scene that is, right? Thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was convened and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming on the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days, and he was escorted before him. And he was given dominion and glory, glory, and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Daniel seven twenty seven continues this. He says, the kingdom... The dominion, the greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom, this kingdom of the Son of Man, will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey him. In Daniel's vision, the Son of Man triumphantly approaches the throne of the Ancient of Days, and he's given an eternal kingdom with unhindered dominion and unmatched glory. While all the enemies of God, all the beasts, all the other rulers, they're overthrown and defeated. And the Son of Man then shares his blessings of his kingdom with the holy ones of the Most High, the people of God. Come back to the upper room now. And when Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, he was pointing to this fulfillment of Daniel's vision. But Jesus also followed that statement up with, and God is glorified in him. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. It's an echo of Isaiah's prophecy about the servant of the Lord, Isaiah 49.3. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Isaiah 52.13 says, see, my servant will be successful he will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Isaiah then goes on in chapter 53 to describe how this servant of the Lord will be successful. How he will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. It's through his suffering and his death. When Jesus said, now, is the, son of, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him, he was revealing himself to be both the victorious son of man from Daniel's vision and the suffering servant from Isaiah's prophecy, he was bringing those two together into one, himself. The way he would be glorified and God would be glorified in him was by being lifted up, yes, lifted up on a cross. The father and the son would be glorified in one another at the cross through their mutual display of love for those of every people, nation, and language who would share in the blessings of Christ's eternal kingdom through faith in him. Remember John 3, 16, for God what? Loved. Loved the world in this way. So loved the world, right? Maybe that's what your translation says. 
What did he do? He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I what? I lay down my life for the sheep. But guess what? I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. People, nation, language. There will be one flock and one shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. John 15, 13, we'll see in a couple weeks. Jesus will tell his disciples, you know what? There's no greater love than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. I'm the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. There's no greater love. God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son. Christ's love is a God-glorifying love because no greater love can be shown. Nowhere. And it was shown by both God the Father and God the Son at the cross, making both the Son of Man and the Father worthy of the highest glory. Christ's love is a God-glorifying love. It's also a disciple-distinguishing love. Look at verses 33 through 35. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new command Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. Three times it's said there. Notice in verse 33 that Jesus called these 11 disciples who remained in the upper room little children. I love that. I love that. It's important to understand that he didn't call them this until after Judas left. Judas may have been one of Jesus' disciples in the earthly sense, but he wasn't in the spiritual sense. Yes, he followed Jesus around. He saw the miracles that Jesus performed. He listened to the teachings that Jesus taught, but he did not believe in Jesus. That's why he walked out and callously betrayed him. Remember what John said in chapter 1, verses 11 through 13? Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be called children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Judas was a Jew like Jesus. He was one of his own people. Jesus came to his own. But Judas did not receive Jesus. And even though the other 11 disciples were confused by Jesus' words and actions here in the upper room, and we'll see that continue, after the cross and the resurrection, they would understand what he said and what he was doing and they would believe in his name. And here in, in verse 33, we see that they've, they've already graciously been given 
this right to be called children of God, little children. Why? Because he said, you're clean. Jesus addressed them this way to reassure them of his love for them. Don't we need that? Don't we need that often? He said it to to reassure them of his love for them and to distinguish them as his true disciples because what he would say next would sound unloving at first. I'm with you a little while longer. You'll look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you where I'm going, you cannot come. That's hard, right? That's hard to hear. If you remember when he said this to the Jews back in chapter 7 and 8, he used some pretty strong and direct language, some, some hard words there. He told them that he was only with them for a short time because he was returning to the one who sent him. And he said, you can't come because you're, you're of this world and you don't believe in me. He said, you'll look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, if you're one of the 11 disciples with Jesus in the upper room and you're replaying this conversation, he said, just like I told the Jews, and so you're, you're replaying that conversation in your head and you're remembering these words, you can't come, you're gonna die in your sin. And now you're sitting there, you and 10 other Jews in the room that are all that's left, your heart starts thumping right there, right? Or just sinks. Because you're, you're like, what? Just as I told the Jews? This is why it's so important not to overlook the fact that he called these 11 Jews little children. He led with that. He led with that. He was telling them that they were no longer of the world. And we'll see that again in chapter 15. He'll say that explicitly. They've been born, yes, not out of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And they had graciously been given the right to be called children of God. Jesus doesn't use the term little children flippantly. Just as Jesus told the unbelieving Jews that they could not come where he was going, he told the disciples the same thing here. But did you notice what he didn't tell his disciples here? That he did tell the Jews back in chapter 7 and 8? He didn't tell these little children that they would die in their sin. Oh, that's so important. Why? Because in his disciple distinguishing love for them, Jesus, Jesus was about to go to the cross to die for their sin so that they don't die in their sin. And after he went to the cross, then he would go to the grave. And after he rose from the grave, he would go to the Father. He would return to the one who sent him just as he said he was going to. And we'll see on Sunday when we look at the first part of chapter 14 that the the reason that he told his disciples that they couldn't come to where he was going was because he was going there to prepare a place for them so that they could join him later. And he would come back for them. But first, but first he had to prepare them for the place. 
first he had to go to the cross so that he could take their sin upon himself and give them his own righteousness instead. And then he had to go to the tomb so that he could raise from the dead and and secure victory over sin and death and the devil on their behalf and grant eternal life to them. And in verse 34, he told them what he expected of them while he was away. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. The Greek word that Jesus uses for love is the word agape. Maybe you've heard it. It's been put in songs and on pillowcases and all kinds of things. Like we were talking about it when we were singing the songs or reading when we first started in Psalms. These words like compassionate and gracious, sometimes they, they become dull to our senses. This could be one of those words. It's a word, though, that's almost used almost exclusively in the New Testament and rarely found outside the Bible in early Greek literature. That's because it finds its ultimate meaning in Christ himself. Agape love is a self-giving love that's rooted in sacrificial service to others even when and especially when they don't deserve it. It's a love that springs supernaturally from the cross, not naturally from our hearts. It's a love that we must first be given before we can give it to others. This is why John said, God is love. This is why John said, we love because he first loved us. Jesus gave that love to his disciples and he commanded them to give that love to one another. But, but why did he call it a new command? If they already had the commands from the Hebrew Scriptures to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself from the, from the Torah, from the law, from Deuteronomy and, and Leviticus, Jesus himself said that the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures depends on these two commands. Everything can be summed up into those two things. So what's new What's new about this command? It's not that the command to love was new. It's that the way to love was new. The focus deepened. It deepened from love your neighbor as yourself to love one another as I have loved you. We talked about this last Sunday a little bit. The standard is different now. It's not what do I think they want and I'll, and I'll treat them the way I think they ought to treat me. It's how has Christ, how has our Lord treated me? How has he loved me? That is how I am to love others. Jesus had just expressed his love for them by washing their feet. Something only a servant would do, was supposed to do. A slave And he would ultimately express his love for them by laying his life down for them on the cross. And now he was calling them to express that same kind of love for one another. Love that's willing to give oneself in humble service to another, even to the point of death. Love that goes all the way. Love that goes to the end. was calling them to agape love and he told them that this kind of love for one another is what would distinguish 
them as his disciples and point the world to him. Tertullian was a Christian theologian in the second century, an apologist, and in one of his writings, he noted uh, the bewilderment of non-Christians at the love that they saw in the followers of Christ. See how these Christians love one another, they said. How they're ready even to die for one another. If only the non-Christians in our society today would say the same thing so emphatically. But I'm afraid it would sound probably something more like this. See how these Christians fight with one another. How they're so ready even to divide from one another. They're no different than anybody else. It's my prayer that that will never be said of us here at Redeemer. Not because we're better than others who call themselves Christians, but because we never lose sight of the love that Christ has shown to us. It doesn't mean we'll never have conflict with one another. That's not real Christianity. But it does mean that when conflict comes, we live worthy, as Paul puts it, of the gospel calling that we've received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, forgiving one another as our Lord has forgiven us. We keep the love of Christ in sight when we keep our eyes fixed on Christ himself. We remember his love when we remember the gospel, that even though we were dead in our sin, God, in his great love for us, his agape love for us, made us alive with Christ and forgave us all our sin. The more that we recognize the depth that our sin goes, the more that we recognize the depth that Christ's love goes. And the more that we recognize the depth that Christ's love goes, the more we will be ready and eager to extend this love to one another. Verse 35 is one that seems to get misquoted by Christians, often unintentionally. And it's not so much that they quote it incorrectly as it is that, that they and we, I've done this before, quote it incompletely. They'll say, everyone will know that we're Jesus' disciples by our love. And stop right there. The problem with that, though, is that Jesus actually specified what kind of love would distinguish us as his disciples. What did he say? By our love, by your love for one another. By your love for one another. That's because this kind of love, it doesn't exist naturally in the world. You won't find it anywhere. It only exists supernaturally in the hearts of those who believe in Christ. It's something that we mutually share with one another. It's something that unites us together and separates us from the rest of the world. But it's also something that Jesus uses to draw people in the world to himself. Our love for one another is and ought to be a powerful display of how the gospel transforms a human heart. D.A. Carson puts it this way. 
At the risk of confounding logic, it's not so much that Christians are to love the world less as they are to love one another more. Better put, their love for each other ought to be a reflection of their new status and experience as the children of God, reflecting the mutual love of the Father and the Son and imitating the love that has been shown to them. We're not originators of this love, but we are called to be imitators of this love. We could take Jesus' words in, 35 to, in verse 35 to mean this. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have my love for one another. If you have my love for one another, when we as disciples of Jesus love one another with the love of Jesus, it becomes a tremendous gospel witness to a world that is desperately looking for real love and cannot find it. This love doesn't distinguish us as Jesus' disciples so that we can look down our noses at the world and claim some sort of elite status in an exclusive club, the agape club. We'll embroider hats and things. No, we won't. I just derailed myself. Because it's so ridiculous, right? It doesn't elevate us, it actually brings us lower. It brings us to the place of servanthood, to imitate our Lord who brought himself low. It distinguishes us as Jesus' disciples, not so that we can claim exclusivity, but so that we can proclaim Christ and his agape love in word and in deed and invite the world to look up at Jesus and experience this love for themselves by putting their trust in him. Christ's love is a disciple distinguishing love so that his disciples can help the world distinguish it as a gospel love. And it's gospel love because it's also a self-sacrificing love. Look at verse 36 through 38. Oh, Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. Jesus replied, will you lay your life down for me? Truly I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Peter was so distraught at the thought of Jesus leaving them that he completely missed the command that Jesus had just given to him. He didn't respond to that at all, right? Or at least if he had heard the command, it didn't concern him as much as Jesus' statement did about uh, 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 being with them only a little while longer. Where are you going, he asked Jesus in verse 36. The underlying question behind that is, why are you leaving us? What's the deal? We just spent three years together, and now you're leaving? The answer to both questions was that Jesus had to go to the cross. Peter, you can't follow me there. 
Peter couldn't follow him because Peter couldn't offer himself as a sacrifice to purchase forgiveness for sinners and remove God's righteous wrath from them. Peter needed that sacrifice. He could not lay his life down for Jesus. He needed Jesus to lay his life down for Peter. Peter claimed to love Jesus more than his own life, but Jesus essentially told him, Oh, Peter, little child, before the rooster crows, you're going to prove your love for yourself instead of proving your love for me. These words had to have cut straight to the heart. More than probably even the realization that Jesus was leaving. But Jesus wasn't telling Peter, you don't love me. That's not what he was saying. He was telling Peter, you need me. You need me. You need what only I can provide. Peter, that is why I'm leaving. Because I'm going to provide it for you. Peter's name might as well be Eric. I feel like I'm reading about myself when I read about him in the Gospels. There's so many times when I want so desperately to show my devotion to Jesus only to be immediately confronted with my utter failure to love him more than I love myself. How many times have you heard the rooster crow? That's why I need what Peter needed. That's why we all need what Peter needed. I love what Sinclair Ferguson wrote about this. He said, the chapter opens with the washing of Peter's feet. It closes with a challenge to Peter's life. It thus pinpoints the needs and the failures of a disciple who, notwithstanding, did actually love the Lord, love his Lord. For such, such as Peter, Christ shed his precious blood. It was for the Simon Peters that he laid aside the garments of glory, stepped down into the world, became a servant, bore the burden of our sin, and rose and ascended in majesty and glory. It was so that Simon Peter and all those like him might join Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I have shared in Peter's immaturities, his misunderstanding, his lack of self-knowledge, and yes, his failure and courage. And you have too. I love this. But these failures need never be final if Peter's Savior is your Savior too. Is Peter's Savior your Savior too? Do you know Christ's self-sacrificing love? If not, then look to the cross where he shed his precious blood. Confess your need for him to bear the burden of your sin and trust that that is exactly what he has done. Rejoice that he laid down his life for you and thank him that your failures are never final because his payment for them is. Jesus told Peter, where I'm going You cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Again, he didn't mean that Peter would become a a second sacrifice for sin, but he did mean that Peter would eventually follow him in death and then join him in glory. 
In chapter 21, Jesus predicted by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And church history tells us that Peter did eventually lay his life down in devotion to Jesus. Considered himself unworthy to share in the same type of death. So he had himself crucified upside down. And he could only do that after he understood the love that Christ had shown to him. Why is Good Friday good? Because through his horrible execution on the cross, Jesus has shown us the greatest love that we could ever know. The cross shows us that Jesus has loved us with a love that is God-glorifying, disciple-distinguishing, and self-sacrificing. And as his disciples, as those who by no merit of our own, by grace alone, have been given the right to be called little children, he's given us this new command. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. So may the aim of our love for one another be to magnify the glory of the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. May the display of our love for one another be a distinguishing witness that unequivocally points the world to the one that we follow, Jesus Christ. And may the manner of our love for one another be that of humble self-sacrifice where we are willing to lay down even our very lives if that's what it takes, because our Lord has laid down his own life for us. It is Good Friday indeed. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are thankful that we can say that as those who have experienced your love for us. We can't even say that until we experience that love. We can't say that honestly. Father, I pray that as we continue, even if as we leave here tonight, as we sing the song to, to close in response, that we would yet again contemplate this love that you've shown us in Jesus Christ, that as we go home and we actually have opportunities to live out the command that we've just heard, that we would do so eagerly, joyfully, willingly, because we are so enthralled with you and your love for us. Be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.